Welcome to another episode of E4 Explosive Podcast. I'm Corey, and today we have Dr. Kathleen Puckett, right? Is that how you say your last name? Puckett. All right. Two T's. Two T's. Two T's, right. So if you could just uh, let everybody know who you are and, and kind of what your background is, um, that would be great. Um, my name is uh, Kathleen Puckett. I was an FBI agent for 23 years. Four years before that, for the four years before that, I was an Air Force officer in the Office of Special Investigations. And before that, I was a war protester at the University of California, Santa Barbara. <laughs> wow. Awesome. So... Um, it was kind of interesting to go into federal service after having a, a, a college experience like that right. in the 70s and during Watergate. So, um, so I am actually, uh, most of my career was in uh, Soviet and then Russian foreign counterintelligence. I'm an old cold warrior. So, but I'm primarily m most known now for the work I did on the Unabom task force from 1994, from the end of 1994, till um, the arrest and conviction. Uh, he was convicted of Peter Kaczynski in 1998 in Sacramento of the Unabom crimes. He pled guilty to all of them. Wow. So we went from 16 years of not knowing who the Unabomber was to 24 months later, he was in custody. 16 years of bombings. Nobody had ever been gotten near him. Right. And uh, the way we did it was a, a very new kind of way of operating in the Bureau that a lot of people were actually opposed to at the time. Really? Because it wasn't the Bureau way. For example, why was it that the criminal division wasn't in charge of the case? Because what happened was every time the leads ran out on a bombing, um, you know, crime continues. It's not like you can stop working criminal cases. Other crimes happen. So when you run out of leads in criminal cases, classically, you're moving on to something else because everything's happening. Right. That case never stopped. And the problem is that the bomber never stopped, but the, there was fits and starts with the investigation. So by 1994, they put a guy in charge of the task force which had been formed after he was gone. Yeah. He, he bombed from 1978 to 1987, ring of bombings. Um, and the details are, are not, I am not the guy to, the person to ask about the bombs themselves. Right. I'm the psychology part of it. Uh, basically, he bombed until he was seen placing a bomb in uh, Utah in Salt Lake City behind a computer store. And that's where the composite came the Famous from. one with the glasses. With his glasses and, you know, the, the uh, aviators in the gray hooded sweatshirt. Yep. Because he was seen by a witness placing a bomb. He never placed another bomb and he never, never uh, sent another bomb until six years and four months later. Oh my God. He was the most careful guy anybody had ever seen. He would, he would, he removed every bit of evidence of his own fingerprints from what he did. He planted evidence to mislead investigators. He never, never did any Unabom uh, events except besides building bombs in his cabin right. in Montana. He would travel on a 
we learned this much later on a trailways bus all the way to the Bay Area or to Salt Lake uh, or uh, to Chicago, where he was from, um, to place at first place bombs and then send after he never sent another bomb after 1987. I mean, he never placed another bomb, excuse me. Uh, after that, it was all through the mail. Never left any clues when he in his devices he would strip the batteries so you couldn't you couldn't figure out where any of the components came from they they called him the junkyard bomber at first wow. really? in the late 70s early 80s because it was just it looked like some kid had put this together and you know but it was real determined and it never stopped so in 1994 my boss mm. was running a counterintelligence squad down in Palo Alto near Stanford beautiful place and they ran out of leads again and they said all right we need somebody to take this over and they picked him and he was a foreign counterintelligence guy wow. and all the criminal guys were very very upset about this right. but what does an fci foreign counterintelligence guy know about bombings well in foreign counterintelligence we're, we're used to looking for needles in a haystack so once we got on it we just never stopped right deter us that the leads went out. Terry just had us go out again. He had, all right, go out again, talk to those people again, reinvestigate every event. And when you're done with that, reinvestigate an event again, you never know what you're going to hit. And we ended up um, having some very fast, we had a lot of projects and a lot of investigative avenues going on. But the most amazing thing about the Unibon case is that it was his own words in the end that led to his identification. And that's exactly how we planned it at the end. We knew that someone would know him by the writings. And so we uh, dueled with a lot of people in the government who were against us recommending it to Janet Reno, sitting in Janet Reno's office with Louis Freed, the director of the FBI, and Terry and my boss. And Janet Reno asked me, you know, why public, can we recommend the, the news wants a guarantee that he's going to stop bombing if they publish his manifesto, FBI, give it to him. We said, we can't do that because right. I don't think he can stop, but someone will know him by his words. Right. That was enough for her. She put her, she put her life and job on the line for that. Wow. So did the, yeah. So, when we, uh, when the guys knocked on the door uh, of the cabin about mm, six months later, a lot of things had happened in the, in the meantime, but we got not a single person on the team who went to the cabin thought Theodore Kaczynski was in there. What? They had no idea. They, they didn't believe it. Oh my God. Just because of the fact that, oh, there's no way that the way that you guys found out how to f go looking for him no, or find him. No, there's no way that somebody living in a cabin with no power, right. no running water, no facilities, 25 years in the woods, a hermit, oh my God. could melt his own metal, could cast his own aluminum, could do uh, build bombs the way he did. He was a genius. He was a mathematician. Right. And he was a solid genius, very, very warped mind, but a very genius mind as far as if he wanted to work on a problem, he'd work on it for years. And when we got his 
manifesto. Yeah. Um, the which he wasn't sent to us. It was sent to um, the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post. Wasn't sent to us. He never sent anything to the FBI directly. But when we got it, we knew that uh, this was what was going to lead someone who knew him because it was obvious that he had, he had been thinking and writing about these things for years. Somebody would know him and recognize him through his words, somebody in his life. We knew that he came from Chicago, so we were working with the public. We knew he came from Chicago, spent some time in Salt Lake City, was in the San Francisco Bay Area. We thought maybe he was in Northern California somewhere. We knew he was isolated, we knew he was alone. We, we knew that he was a needle in a haystack, but somebody, he had communicated these things to someone before. And in 1996, in February, an attorney in Washington named Tony Basegli was contacted by uh, the brother, David Kaczynski, and his wife, Linda Patrick. Linda had been in Paris on a sabbatical. She was a, a um, philosophy professor. And she saw excerpts of the manifesto published in the Paris Herald Tribune, English language version. And she told David she'd never met Ted Kaczynski. David hadn't seen him for 10 years, but she'd read, she'd heard all about him. She'd read his letters. She'd read, she knew all about him. It was the family tragedy. Right. Ed Kaczynski was the family tra tragedy. And uh, she told David, I'm worried. This sounds like your brother. He said, there's no way. Oh my to God. Anything like this. She said, promise me when we get home, you'll read the manifesto. He promised her, but then, and then when he read it, he said, now I know this worries me, but we should have it checked out. They tried to have it analyzed. They went over it and over it. They would compare it with writings on their own in their house in Schenectady, New York. They were trying to figure this out. And uh, is it possible that it's him? No, it couldn't be him. It, it's just, there's no way. There was no precedent for him harming anyone right. or anything. He's a big animal lover, you name it. Back to the earth guy. Yeah. So um, when we met with him, it was after he had sent us through his attorney, Tony Basegli, a 23-page essay that turned out to be written originally in 1971 and later transmuted by him in 1995 into the manifesto. Whoa. You can actually see, we actually have the original copy where he said, rework this and, you know, for this essay. And that's what he wanted to go down in history is having that essay be his statement to the world. But he had written it in 1971 to start with. Oh my God. He evolved over the years. He got more and more uh, involved in the whole, and, and his bombs got more and more sophisticated and people started to die. Right. So it's, it's a fascinating case. I mean, I, it's a case in a, a million, a zillion. And right. it, it, in the uh, FBI First 100 Years book, it's one of the cases that that's figures in that book. Um, but it was not in the FBI uh, thought to be um, that much of a success because it took us so long to find one man. Right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, the FBI would want to handle it 
as soon as possible, obviously. But I mean, when you're dealing with someone, that's another thing I was going to ask you when you mentioned the, the, the people in the bureau, like going to the cabin, there's like, oh, there's no way this guy is going to be. But they didn't realize who he was at the time. I don't think no one realized how brilliant he was in his history. He was at Harvard. I mean, he was a math, like you said, mathematician, like genius. So we already knew that. We knew that. Just about five of us in the bureau knew that. I knew that. My boss, Terry, knew that. Wow. Partner Joel knew that. The SAC, Jim Freeman, knew that. The S the Louis Free knew that. So did Janet Reno. But in the bureau, there were only a few people who believed that he was the guy. Wow. I got thrown out almost of the Chicago office of the FBI because they were sure they had the guy who was the Unabomber. And there was no way that a hermit in, a, in the woods in Montana could be the Unabomber. I mean, I got yelled at by a whole team of people who had been right. working years right so it's very it's it's a very it was a very contentious thing definitely definitely what then the, the unibomber the name who came up with that why did why is it why is he named the unibomber the first four events um started in 1978 at a university um university of illinois chicago circle campus they found a, a device on the floor that on the, the the tarmac of a parking lot that um hadn't been mailed, but was covered with stamps. And the return addressee was professor at uh, Northwestern University. So they took it to him and he said, I don't know anything about this. The guard opened it and it blew up and it was a rudimentary device, but that was the first device. So that was the first university. The second device was also at, it, this one was at Northwestern University in a student lounge somebody who knew the area. Right. And then the third one was uh, a, uh, an aircraft, a bomb had put into, been put into the mail stream, air mail, mm -hmm. to go and an American Airlines flight, it exploded or it actually, um, it, the, it, it, it started a fire. It didn't actually explode, but it conflated enough to where it, caused the plane to fill with smoke and they had to, they made an emergency landing and some people were injured, but it, no one was killed, but that was the objective to take that plane down. Right. That was in 79. So two universities, then there's an airline. And then the fourth bomb was the president of United Airlines in Chicago. That's to his house, right? Sent to his house. And, um, Nobody knew where he was picking his victims from. Usually you do victimology in a case. Right. Bombing cases usually lead you somewhere. This hadn't led anywhere for many, many years. Wow. After the first four devices, a guy named Chris Rene, the um, bomb guy at uh, the FBI lab, said, you know what? These were thought to be isolated events, but these things are all related. This is, this is a junkyard bomber is a serial bomber. Right. And so Unibomb University, and then bomb BOM. Wow. And it's always misspelled in FBI cases, so you know. Yeah. Never, everybody, everybody who wasn't in the Unibomb case would spell it with a B on the end, but we don't. Hmm. Interesting. I never knew why he was called the Unibomber, but that obviously makes sense. First day the airlines. Yeah. Right. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, he, so as far as like his manifesto and stuff like that, I know that, I don't know if it's, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it's well-documented like his time at Harvard when he would have, like he says, like the MK ultra and all these things done to him and stuff like that. He what, doesn't say that. Everybody says that about him. 
Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh my God. That's crazy. Wow. And uh, fascinating guy. And so we had two and, and uh, Phil Resnick, who was the other forensic psychiatrist, very prominent guys. I got the chance to work with them as I had just finished my, my doctoral work, uh, not my dissertation yet, but my curriculum. And here I got to be working with the top flight forensic psychiatrists in the country right. on what made uh, Ted Kaczynski tick. Right. That's so amazing. I, it was like, it was like, it, I, I was so privileged to be where I was in the U.S., in, in the, um, you know, Attorney General of the United States sitting in the middle of her conference room with WPA murals from the 30s on the walls. Wow. And, and sitting, talking to Louis Free, him asking me my, my opinion. Right. The, the AG asking my opinion. Traveling all over the country, talking to people. And I did a study for the counterterrorism division afterwards um, about lone terrorists like Theodore Kaczynski, um, Timothy McVeigh, right. Eric Robert Rudolph, um, and essentially did a study based on, I had just finished my doctoral dissertation, so I was kind of into the research mode. Right. And Terry, who was, who was, was the deputy assistant director for the new counterterrorism division, asked me to do a study about how are we going to see these guys coming? Right. Like predicting what it. Are, yeah. How do you trick, you know, predicting human behavior is very, very tricky. Right. Very difficult to do. And threat assessment is a very, very difficult profession. But I got into it because I was up against some of the most incredible criminal minds in, I mean, there are a lot of criminals, but yeah. there aren't many uh, people who sustain uh, you know, 25 years of criminal intent and are never discovered and bomb for a period of, of yeah. that long. Or like Eric Robert Rudolph, who disappeared into the woods in uh, Nantahala Forest in uh, North Carolina, who after a year, everybody said he was dead. Said, that guy is not dead. Wow. He's laying low in there all by himself for five years. Yeah. So these are minds that I got to explore in my career uh, at the, and, and this isn't even talking about the foreign counterintelligence cases that I worked, which most of them are not, you know, public access, but right. I had the opportunity in the behavioral analysis program, the national security division to work on all the big spy cases right. in the 80s and 90s. Right. So yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so, dude, like the 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 fact that it, uh, it reminds me. I don't know if you've seen the show, um, oh, the one about serial killers. That's on. Uh, yeah, Mindhunter. Mindhunter. Yeah, yeah. So it reminds me of kind of that, where like you're up against something that you know no one and you know none of your none of your colleagues like believe that you guys you know your mindset is the right way to go it's something new that no one's ever seen before and like you're basically having to create ways to find this person in like real time it was so fascinating it was so fascinating i was so privileged to be there at the right time to do this right you know i was one of the first hundred women in the fbi yeah so and um, so I came in in 1978. There were only, yeah, about 100 of us at the time. Whoa. And um, there have never been that many. 
you know, I think maybe at the most 1,500, maybe 2,000. I don't think that many. Um, so uh, I was, I got a chance to get in on the ground floor of a lot of things because they just didn't have that many. Right. But now they had women agents that they could use undercover and they could, I mean, I was undercover against the KGB at one point. Whoa. Which was cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, so, I mean, it was, it was, uh, I had so many opportunities being, I had Air Force experience. I had counterintelligence experience from that work in Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, the submarine bases and the, and the um, uh, you know, Boeing and all the aircrafts, all the, all the um, uh, military contractors and everything up in the Pacific Northwest. And then, of course, San Francisco with Silicon Valley and everything else. So I, I was able to have the experiences of a lifetime compressed into a career, like the last 10 years of my career in the FBI were, was when this all happened. Because I, I went in 78, I went to language school to learn Russian in, in uh, 84. My God. Uh, in 88, I started studying psychology. I finished my curriculum in 94 and went it right into the Unibon case. Whoa. So I, my timing is everything. Right. Anybody will tell you that in any profession. Right. Because, you know, I mean, it's just, I, I was just at the right place and I was very lucky. Right. To, That's... And I was, I was so happy to have a mentor in my boss, Terry Turchi, who is still like a brother to me. Right. We differ politically, but we'll always be close because he he gave, he recognized in me I wasn't that great an agent my first ten years. Right. It was because of him and my partner Joel Moss who developed my my uh, developed the level of of effort that I, I, I was pretty lazy before that. I was kind of a reputation as a lazy agent. Really? For the first 10 years, yeah. And, um, and they were right. I mean, I was, I was uh, easily distracted. I wasn't that interested in some, even some of the good cases that I had an opportunity to do. I was just distracted by the social environment. You know, it's, it's a heady atmosphere. You're around the, you know, these guys all the time. There's a beer call every night. There's uh, everything. It's a very intense atmosphere. It's I'm very sure. competitive, but um, I was not. I didn't have a great rep. Just going through the motions. I was for, for a few years. And then once Terry lit a fire under me, and so did, so did Joel, and I started working this, and I, I got the appetite for, oh, my God, this is so much more interesting than just marking time. Right. And I, and I, I finally learn how to do interviews, which is one of the reasons why I started studying psych. Right. Because I, before that, I would be more conscious of putting, giving them an impression of myself. I'm sitting across someone in a room. During the early years, I was more concerned about how I was coming across than what they were, what they had to say. say yeah. So wow. I was so self-involved and so new and so crass about it. And I taught students quite a bit after this and i said the, the main thing is that you have to get out of your, your own way you have to 
totally forget about yourself and concentrate totally on the other person in front of you. And once you do that, you will never be in the same position again of, of not knowing what you're doing. Right. That you're makes a lot of sense. Five, right. Yeah. I yeah. say that about anything. I was going to say, I can, yeah, I can relate to that. You know, I think a lot of people. People every day who do all kinds of different things. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, that's so true. Um, do you, as you said, you were one of the first hundred women in the FBI. Can you just kind of explain to me? Cause I think that is, that alone is fascinating, but just like what you were saying, it's kind of like, you know, I would assume it's a man's world, especially in the FBI and you know, all that stuff that, that that's going on. What one of my classmates said to me in new agents class at Quantico, which was, it's tough you know, it's a tough ordeal. Right. I, very unathletic person, actually went over, with some assistance, the <laughs> Marine Obstacle Course. You know, wow. I went to the Quantico. Right, because the Marines are down there too, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, the, Mar- the Marines and the Bureau have a long relationship. Right. So there is there is a very macho aspect to the Bureau, and there's a very elite, elite aspect to the Bureau. And I knew, because I had worked with the FBI before, I was in the Air Force worked a lot of joint cases and I was recruited by both the FBI and the CIA and I decided to go with the bureau because it was I would have the rule of law to have as an anchor whereas you don't have that with the agency you're operating out overseas in no man's land so I knew why I wasn't mature enough or was I didn't I didn't trust myself enough to keep my land legs while I was in that so I went, I went into the bureau, and um, why did I start talking about this now? As a woman in the FBI and like all that stuff. Yes. Okay. So in the in the bureau, and what happened was I became totally sort of was in the Air Force too. I had a ball. I had. I mean, I'm tall. I was big. I I was physically strong, although I wasn't that coordinated and athletic, but I could hold my own. And I'd been in the Air Force, so I could. Hold my own with the guys. Definitely. And I didn't cow, you know, didn't cower. Uh, so I could pretty much give as good as I got. Right. So they learned that, you know, okay, not only can she, you know, swig a beer with us, she can keep up with us. Right. And I enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed them so much. I mean, you know, their camaraderie and everything was just so much fun. Right. So I got real distracted by the social life in the FBI. That's crazy. Uh, a lot of, uh, that happens a lot to people who are new. You know, you get overwhelmed with the social aspects rather than the work. Right. And that's kind of how I was hurting myself in the first 10 years. And so, uh, but once I fell in love with psychology and where it could take me and that I could help other agents figure out what was going on in their cases, because they would say, I don't know what to do with this guy. I don't understand him at all about the subject of the case. Mm-hmm. Like say, Say an espionage case. This guy is, I don't understand him at all. I can't, I can't relate. He's, this is what he does. This is what he says. And we start looking at him and we, we just paint a whole picture of him. Tell me everything about him, you know. And after a while, I'd say, this is, I think, what's really concerning this guy. And then you pinpoint what that guy is concerned with. Then you have a way in. Right. Yeah. Is that profiling in a way? It's not, I was never a profiler. And in fact, I got into, I got a lot of heat for that because I wasn't a qualified profiler like a mine hunter. Right. Um, that mine hunter is, is based on a book by John Douglas, who was one of the original profilers from the seventies. Yep. 
But um, I thought they did a really good job with it in the first season. I'm looking forward to the second season of it. Yeah, it's out. Is it out already? The second season's out. Third season is in the the works. That's right. I did did watch the first season. Yeah, that's a fantastic show. And I like the way they've they've done that show. Yeah. Oh, the the Kemper. Oh, my God. I remember the Kemper case. I mean, California. I was a student. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. They, they, that. The serial killers look just like the re- like actors look. Ju- I mean, I don't know if you, what's that? Especially Kemper. Oh my God, he's like spitting image. It's like they brought him. I I couldn't believe it. Was, it. it was eerie. Yeah, it was super eerie. eerie. So um, yeah, I admire that show. And so, um, um, but but I wasn't doing criminal work. So right. if you're not doing criminal work. You don't go into the uh, profiling unit because that's hmm. all. Interesting. So they didn't do counter uh, counterterrorism, really. They didn't do. I mean, that's why counterterrorism was essentially under the National Security Division, which uh, was where I was with foreign counterintelligence. Right. Then in 1999, right before I retired, two years later, um, uh, in 1999, they stood up a new division for the first time in the FBI in many, many decades. Uh, the counterterrorism division. Only in 1999 they started that, and Terry was made one of the top executives, Terry wow. Church, in that. So he's the one who asked me to do the study. That's why I was able to do that and travel all around and right. with terrorists and and um, what was the psychology behind what, what was motivating them and how to spot them. You know, his main concern was I don't really care about them. What I want to do is can we see? Can we find a way to see what they're doing before they act because right. they come out of woodwork. Right. Because they're not working with it. They're not in a group. They're solo. Groups are easier to follow because groups, I mean, people who socialize in a group are visible. Right. They're visible. So, uh, but, so that's, that's when, when, um, I mean, I, I was able to help. I was able to help, you know, Theodore Kaczynski, I don't know if you know, Theodore Kaczynski was, Unabomb suspect, 2,416. Oh, my God. That means that there were 2,415 suspects before them. Some of them were really good suspects. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. So that's like you guys going through like all these leads, I mean, over the years, and like tracking every single person. Hey, look, I got this guy. I think he's good for it because this is what he said. I, you know, when he'd get really excited about it. Right. And I'd say, okay, let's look at this timeline. Let's look at this. Let's, you know, well, you know, here's why I think. And I, I had a team of people come to me from, because we were also working with the ATF. Yeah. Team of ATF agents came with the United, um, AUSA, Assistant United States Attorney, who were convinced they had the Unabomber identified. Really? Chemist. It's a government chemist. And um, they were convinced. And he, they, they gave me all this, this information that they were absolutely convinced would convince me that this guy was a Unabomber. And I said, I listened to everything they said. And then I said, here's why I disagree with you. Wow. Now, nothing about his, he, he didn't have anything to prove. He was doing well in his career. He had uh, no resentments. He was well thought of. He was well traveled. You know, what was he what was he wanting that he wasn't getting? I mean, all of these people are trying to fill a hole or holes in themselves somewhere. Right. 
and he was pretty fulfilled. Right. So happy people are generally not criminals, right. especially the kind of predatory criminals like the Unabomber, like Rudolph, like Timothy McVeigh. Right. They're all motivated by very similar things. I don't know how much you know about brain psychology, but basically... Zero. <laughs> okay, so basically what, what very, very simply said, you know, connections are everything. You remember that old TV series, Connections, when, in that English guy who said, you know, this led to this, and then this experiment yeah. happened here and all that. It was this, you know, like, and then who knew? You know, the penny was invented. And then, right, right. You know, you know, so, I mean, there was all this stuff that was connect connections, it's called. Um, we are wired to make connections between things, mm -hmm. between behavior, between events, between objects, between because it's how we evolve to make sense of our world. We can't control what we can't understand. So connections are important. Right. Um, you know, this is connected to this, therefore I get this. This, this is connected to this. Um, the problem is that these lone terrorists that I studied, like Kaczynski, like, um, like Timothy McVeigh, were not the steely-eyed killers on their own that people thought. They thought of themselves as incomplete because they didn't have a social, an ability to socially connect successfully with other people. Even if they, even though they wanted to, because human beings are drawn to do that. We right. are drawn, we are driven to connect. Biologically, we're driven to connect. Psychologically too, but biologically we are because we don't have fangs and claws. We, we can't exist on our own out there. Right, makes sense. Technology, which is interesting because technology, of course, is Ted's big bugaboo. Like you know, it's ruining the human race, but it's what it's what did him in. You know, right. did his uh, his war against technology. So um, the connections that people make between each other, you might think, are it's a very ordinary, common human experience. But for some people who are not constituted to be able to make those social connections they're still driven to go for that but they're they're never going to they're never going to be able to establish that ted kaczynski um wrote about this all the time about how he wanted to stop what he was doing get married and have kids uh re-enter society uh, he couldn't understand why he couldn't get the woman a, a squad to live with him and he actually he actually advertised in the berkeley paper for a squad to come and live with him in the woods um he he had no history of any successful relationship with a woman at all they were like aliens to him wow so but he kept he it's it's a it's a need that he kept trying to say you know if i can't if i can't be connected to human society in an important way, then I will make the biggest splash I can make. I will connect instead to something that's larger than me, ideology, right. anti-technology, you know, Eric Rudolph was anti-abortion, a cause that put them, uh, that, that you fight for, you become the avenging angel and the true believer of that, Cause. Right. And that gives you purpose in the world 
when you can't successfully connect to anyone else. So you don't have to be a group. You'll notice that all of these, all these guys say they're a group. Right. We, they all say we, they all, you know, because there's power in social groups. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I never even noticed that. (laughs) That's amazing. That's like, Oh my God. All right. So the, you never met the Unabomber and Ted Kaczynski. I saw him in court. I saw him in court. court. Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Well, the, but you interviewed his brother. Many times. So is it. Traveled with his brother, interviewed him. Really? Yeah. So, so you know, you know, like, you know, like the real story of kind of, kind of like you said, like how he was basically caught by his brother realizing this is his writings from his manifesto and stuff like that. Was it the, was it the word Christmas? Or or is that, was it the word Christmas, the way he spells Christmas? No, Um, there were several things that he spelled. Um, He had some several British spellings uh, in his like analyze. He would, he would, uh, we, we spell it with a Z in States. They spell it with an S um, different, different little spellings and things of words and different. One thing that um, he had was the saying, um, you can't eat your, cake and ha- eat your cake and have it too. That's right. And that is a very British way to say it rather than have your cake and eat it too. Right. That's the way we usually say it. Wow. So, That's right. Yeah. So there were things like that. And there were little clues that he could recognize. Uh, he was a mathematician, so he he knew about degrees of freedom in math and he used that term in his writing and his brother recognized. And so did we, when we saw the, the uh, paper that he sent to us, the essay, this, this is in one of the letters that he sent. This is in one of the, uh, you know, what he makes a reference to all kinds of different books, uh, the technological society by Jacques Ellul, an obscure work, but it's, from the 70s and we could place his education uh much better once we got i mean once we had all the documents we had everything right because he never saw us coming he never thought we'd find him in montana never. wow never. you could kind of tell by him just kind of like i feel like it was like such an underwhelming apprehension well no it could have been we were convinced i was convinced and a lot of other words that that cabin was booby trapped he was right. so that you know it was going to go up, go up in flames since he never did see us coming he didn't prepare for that he prepared for going and burying things and burning things that were incriminating to him but he never did them because he never saw anybody get near him wow and we didn't we didn't have that long to look at him before we had to move because cbs news dan rather called louis free and said we know who the Unabomber is and you're going to make an arrest. And Louis Free said, uh, you've got to give us some time with agents and agents. To, you know, well, you know, that's very interesting, but, and, and he's in Montana. And, and, and it was like, okay, you got to work with us here. We need at least 24 hours. And we jammed agents up there. Right. Ready and went in and got the search warrant. Why is that? Why does that happen? Why would the TV be like, listen, like we, we can. Like a scoop. Right, but that's like you're risking people's lives at that point. Well, journalism is an interesting profession, but they, they, <laughs> they, you know, the deal was okay. We will, we will hold off unless ABC gets a hold of it. And then, oh my God! Stop. 
that's shameful. Wow. That's crazy. Well, that's like when you were interviewing his brother, did you, cause I can imagine that's his brother, right? Even though he hasn't seen him in over 10 years, like it may, did he feel like he was like doing him in? He was absolutely devastated at the thought that his brother was the Damn. He was literally in tears. Yeah, I bet. He was, he's a tall philosophical guy. He's, he, at the time when I, that I met him, he was a social worker working in an inpatient facility for disturbed teenagers. Wow. And you can't get harder than that. Right. And, and his wife was a professor of psychology. I mean, um, philosophy wow. in Schenectady. And he was, he's a Buddhist. They're both Buddhists. They, they oh, wow. A Buddhist ceremony. Um, peaceful, just, I mean, an absolutely impeccable spirit right. who loved his brother who he knew was very disturbed, but he just couldn't imagine. Every time we met, he would say, caveat, I know that we're meeting again because you haven't, you haven't eliminated my brother as a suspect. And I would say, you're right. We haven't eliminated it. So we have to proceed. Right. And I met him in, in Chicago. I met him in Washington DC in the middle of a blizzard first and then met him in, Texas, where he had a cabin, and I met him in Chicago and up in Schenectady. So we we spent a lot of time together. Wow, damn, yeah. remarkable yeah. person. Right? Yeah, he was saying off camera that he's like, does does he does he have any idea like why Ted would do something? I mean, obviously his manifesto kind of explains why, but he believes very strongly that his brother is is you know the court appointed psychiatrist came up with the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenic and he he very um grievous he's 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 been in grief for many years about the fact that his brother is mentally ill right which um actually we didn't see him that way because he could um he was capable of doing so many things right certainly obsessed but um i think of it more as a personality disorder than than a um, mental illness cognitive disorder right you know, it, it, you know, he knew, I thought, in my estimation, he was capable of knowing right from wrong and reality from unreality. Right. Which is kind of a basic tenet of the mental. Right. You know, and um, the delusions that he was supposed to have were, had to do with two things, essentially. His parents had manipulated him and uh, destroyed his life by having him skip two grades and go to Harvard at 16. Mm-hmm. And the other was that technology was ruining human life and the human race. It was a tragedy for the human race. A lot of people believe both things and they're not insane. Right. That's true. Yeah. And uh, it, it, yeah. yeah, a lot of, a lot of that, that's like a slippery slope too for, <clears throat> for you guys too. Cause like you're, like a psychiatrist or someone saying he's mentally ill. He's just, and then you're like, no, this man is like completely competent and brilliant of, you know, sending these ridiculously made bombs to people calculated has been off the grid. can't be found by federal agencies. Like, you know, that's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow for someone. Oh, he's mentally ill. You know what I mean? Like, so I can imagine looking well, for the saddest someone. thing about it was that right. um, I got very, you know, very close to David and his wife. A lot of people thought that I was too close to them. 
right. that was easy on David, but it was just agony for David to do what he did with us. And he, um, when his brother was, was arrested and when the proceedings started, Janet Reno okayed the death penalty. Right. It created a death penalty case, which David thought he had ensured would not happen by, you know, please just, I just want to save people's lives, but I also want to save my brother's life. Right. Now he was going to go down the path where, you know, he was a government witness for, you know, against his brother. And he, he absolutely, we didn't speak for years. Um, actually not that, not true. Cause we actually spoke in, in court when we were right uh, before that. I was very close. I, I had good a relationship with his attorney and mm -hmm. I, I asked him, could you, how's David doing? And would you please say hello for me? Right. And uh, we ended up having a hug in the middle of the courtroom that, that luckily most people were out of the courtroom. By now, right. Because they would have said, what the hell is this? this is right. Um, that's the last thing that the bureau would, would have wanted to have happen was an agent hugging this, you know, because it's his brother, his brother in court, you know, so luckily that didn't get a lot of play. But um, so, but it was tragic because, and, and then when Kaczynski finally pled guilty, he did plead guilty to avoid being forced into a mental health defense. Right. And he could not be categorized as, he would do anything rather than have, you know, uh, be characterized as mentally ill. Right. Yeah. That was one of the things that this, that the show, the um, Manhunt, like I think portrayed, right? Where he would like, he was so against that label yeah right yeah. yeah so he pled guilty to all the charges wow yeah he's in colorado right now right supermax florence colorado doesn't really come out of his cell like he used to he used to come out an hour a day but it's solitary i mean it's it's the same size as his cabin was. 10 by 12 oh my god yeah which He's I mean, on Bombers Road with, with uh, Eric Rudolph, with Ramsey Youssef. That's where Timothy McVeigh was, too. Um, yeah. They were all there? Yeah. Whoa, I did not know that. Yeah, Bombers Road. Whoa, you said Bombers Row? Bombers Row. Holy crap. Yeah, Timothy McVeigh's another one. That that guy, that was, oh, my God, what the what the – fertilizer or whatever it was in a u-haul truck but like i like sometimes when people like talk and they compare like bombers and stuff like that i don't think there is any or has never been anyone like kaczynski because um what's his name the, the um the one in oh my god the guy who i just said what's his name um McVeigh? Tim, yeah mcveigh they got caught like right away like, you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know. I, I feel like that was like a, to make a statement. Oh, I don't care anymore. Like whatever. They were so sloppy with it almost when, when Kaczynski. Right. Kaczynski was the most careful criminal oh I've ever seen. Crazy, crazy. The detail that he went into and the fact that you're saying he wrote down everything he thought and like would take years to work on like a single problem. That is just like, that blows my mind knowing like, obviously the parts of the case that are so you know polarized and publicized but like those little details are so fascinating to me because like that really shows like like what kind of person he really was right right it's amazing have you guys had any like headway of like you know since the program that you guys started to kind of predict and find 
people like this? There have been successes in preventing uh, uh, acts of violence from lone offenders. Um, the things that have been prevented aren't going to be publicized because right. there's too much information out. But yeah, what we've learned about, um, although I have to say, Kaczynski, as you say, was unique. Right. I mean, he's, he was one in a zillion. Right. I agree. Uh, yeah. So, but, but no, there are people who want to um, be more than they are. They're not accepted socially. They think that that's a way that they can uh, matter in life. Right. That their lives matter because they're not, they don't, they don't matter in the social sense. Right. Damn. And that's like their, is it like, would you say like, it's like an outcry or it's just kind of like the way that they just like, you, you know, it's just how they operate or whatever. You know what I mean? Well, like sitcom. If you can intervene and if, if you can intervene in someone who's going down that, that route, uh, you know, and, and get them socialized in, in a different way where they get what they're looking for. Right. With a purpose, you know, right. they're able to to have a purpose in life that that makes them feel worthwhile. That's a good step, right? Yeah, because that, that makes me think like like because I'm like also obsessed like serial killers and like the way why they do certain things. And I think it's kind of I don't know if it is, but it seems like similar to where like like they all have something almost in common, right? Where like you know they're terrible relationship with their mother, sexual abuse when they were a kid, physical abuse, they killed animals growing up and stuff like that. Was there anything in his life that like stood out to kind of like explain anything at all? You know what I mean? His parents should have taken him to the doctor. <laughs> they thought that he, Kaczynski, they, they, but they were very proud of him. He was such a genius. Right. Uh, they were extremely proud of him. The working class should family, uh, very proud, um, some, uh, children of Polish immigrants, and he was the pride of this family, right. and he became their their biggest sorrow. But they never thought that they should um, interfere with his personality and his development, because yeah. they thought that they had a genius on their hands, and who were they? To, right. You know, they they dealt with him as they they never would have submitted him to treatment, but they should. Right. That's amazing. Wow. Is there anything else that you would want to kind of talk about? Or, I mean, I we're going like about an no, hour. Yeah, we're going, we're going, um, kind of, we need to kind of wrap this up, but, yeah. um, but yeah, so this is, you know, it's kind of like walk, I've walked down these, these roads many, many times with many, sure. so, um, you know, I never, as you can tell, get tired of talking about these things because it's fascinating. It's so fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating. I'm like, when I called you and talked to you and you said the first thing out of your mouth, I told my girlfriend the night before, I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if like one of these agents I talked to had something to do with like a cool case? And you're like, oh yeah, the Unabomber. And I was like, holy shit. Like my head literally exploded because like I've always been obsessed with this kind of stuff. And it's, it's interesting and it's good to kind of hear like the real story and not the, you know, the stuff we see on TV. So I really appreciate you talking to me about this kind of stuff. My pleasure. Awesome. Well, that's another episode of E4 Explosive Podcast, and we'll see you next time.